Welcome to The Dynamist, a podcast by Lincoln Network. I'm Evan Schwartz-Traber. We're recording on February 24th, and it is hard to believe that a year ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. The ensuing war put energy policy in the global spotlight. The dependence of European nations like Germany on Russian oil and gas has played a major factor in Russian aggression, arguably enabling Putin's army to invade. Despite sanctions from the U.S. and others and a surprisingly strong resistance from Ukraine, Russia continues to finance its war machine through energy sales. In the United States, Republicans and Democrats continue to spar over our country's energy future. Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, better known as AOC, said three years ago that the world would end in 12 years if we don't address climate change, pushing for a Green New Deal. Republicans have accused the Biden administration of killing domestic energy production, moving us from the energy independence we enjoyed under Trump to now the energy dependence that we suffer under President Biden, or so they allege. And they cite long stretches of astronomical gas prices in 2022 as evidence of a failed energy policy in the United States. My guest today argues that the answer to these seemingly intractable fights is energy abundance. But what does that mean? Well, there's one way to find out. Let's ask him. Alex Staff is the co-founder and co-CEO of the Institute for Progress, a nonpartisan research and advocacy organization in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, he was director of tech policy at the Progressive Policy Institute. Alec, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Evan. So before we dive in, I've had a lot of think tank and research folks on the show, and your organization is relatively new. And D.C. is chock full of think tanks and research orgs. But at least to me, it looks like you've set out to do something different and unique with IFP. So Tell me a little bit about your organization. Sure, I'd be happy to. So we are an innovation policy think tank. All the policy areas we work on touch or make up innovation in some sense. We selected the areas we'd work on. We tried to focus on things that were important, neglected, and tractable. There's a lot of great think tanks in D.C. that do work on telecom policy, privacy, antitrust, etc. But there's a lot less work being done on science policy, for example. How can we change NSF, NIH, and make them function better? And, you know, immigration, there's a lot of groups that work on immigration, but not many that work on high-skilled immigration. And there's a bipartisan support for that. And then finally, biosecurity. How do we prevent future pandemics? And innovation is a big part of that. How can we invent new vaccines, therapeutics, advanced PPE, et cetera? Excellent. Well, those are some very important topics, and it's great to see the work that you all are doing on that. Energy is, of course, a big focus of your organization. You relatively recently wrote a piece called Climate Relief Can't Wait for Utopia. I believe this was in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So you talk about kind of the history of environmentalism, which is largely focused on stopping pollution by kind of stopping production of energy, right? If you you shut down oil drilling or if you close a coal-fired power plant or if you ban fracking for natural gas in a certain area or if you prevent a pipeline from being built, you will stop climate change or prevent climate change. You argue that's not really the right way of thinking about it. If, if the solution to stopping climate change is not to stop pollution, then what is the solution to stopping climate change? Yeah, and this is kind of like an outdated mode of thinking from the 1970s that maybe at least wasn't the best decision back then, but made more sense in the old days when really if you stop the next pipeline or stop drilling, you might actually decrease emissions from fossil fuels. Instead of people substituting towards other sources of energy, they might just use less energy because energy is more expensive. So It was a more consistent theory, I would say. But now, as we have different kinds of low and zero carbon uh, sources of energy coming online, you have solar, wind, geothermal, potentially next generation nuclear, 
And then transmission lines carry all of that elect clean electricity around the country from where it's produced to where consumers need to can demand that energy. All that requires building new clean energy infrastructure. And so stopping building in the real world is not a feasible climate plan. And so we need to figure out how to be pro-building, pro-dynamism. And a lot of our laws in the books, like most notably, but there are many others, the National Environmental Policy Act is all about proceduralism. It's about you need to document every potential um, environmental impact of a project of any major federal policy action. And surprise, everything qualifies as a major, major federal policy action. And it's all about documentation. So you can do whatever you want to the environment as long as you document it. And then the way that both good faith and bad faith actors exploit these laws is they say, oh, you missed something. And so they challenge you in court after the review is done. There's often an injunction issued against the project that leads to interminable delays. Um, and projects often die this way. And it's this all is because a, it was an in, incomplete review. Right. And is this as simple as people don't like living near energy production, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you want to, we'll get to nuclear later, but that was kind of the old joke. It's like, oh, of course we should have more nuclear energy, but find me anybody who wants to live next to the nuclear power plant because if something goes wrong, you're the first to die, <laughs> right? And and why would you want to live near a coal plant? Because then you're, you maybe your air quality suffers or a um, oil plant or even a wind farm. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not, maybe you're not worried about getting chopped by a, a wind turbine because you <laughs> accidentally walk too close to it or your boat is too close to the offshore wind farm, but it's an eyesore. I don't want to look at that, mm -hmm. right? So, and then solar farms too, right? It's like, oh, I have this beautiful landscape that was now, is now ugly because it's just a bunch of blue panels everywhere. Is it as simple as the National Environmental Protection Act in DC, everyone calls it NEPA, it just allows basically any NIMBY, right, not in my backyard type person to say, I don't like this. Yeah, that's basically correct. And I think my favorite example probably is out in Cape Cod, there was a major project to do uh, offshore wind. And that was opposed by both the Koch brothers and the Kennedys because they had properties there and didn't want to see offshore wind turbines. See, know? that's the bipartisanship that we've been exactly. waiting for. It right? really unifies left and right <laughs> in this country. I always try to be clear that we shouldn't deny that there are local costs to construction, right? So like people do enjoy the views that they had when they first bought their property. If you do a lot of building, there's noise and often if it increases density of people, so I'm not talking about energy now, but other types of building, um, there's traffic, like there are real costs to the local person who lives there. But I think we can both recognize that, those costs, and also decide that, well, we can't give every single person complete veto rights over their local environment because that leads to complete stasis, no growth, and in the long run, it miserates all of us. And so I think we need to think, okay, how can we balance those costs with benefits? How can we do things like community co-benefits of projects to make sure that local residents are seeing large benefits from a solar farm or wind farm or any other type of energy generation. But at the end of the day, and this, is, and this is why we see in many cases, if you move the decision-making from the local level to the state level or even the federal level, you get better outcomes because those leaders have to consider lots of positive spillovers and dynamic growth effects from building, from new energy uh, generation capacity. And so I think we shouldn't deny people's reality that it is annoying oftentimes to have this kind of construction going on in your backyard, but the answer is not, well, we can have no new projects ever. But which, aside from the annoyance or the nuisance issue, are you arguing that kind of the, it, this is well-intended, but it's not stopping the horror stories that we think of when we think back a hundred years ago, right? You think back to the industrial revolution, right? The London smog, right? People are literally collapsing in the streets, right? 
NEPA is not preventing those worst case scenarios is what you're saying. All it's doing is just making making you have to do paperwork. I mean, you have to do paperwork. There are obviously substantive environmental laws in the books like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. Um, and those can actually be, in some sense, maybe need to be beefed up. It's this proceduralism that's incapacitating the country to do much of anything, both good and bad projects. And then in general, our philosophy at the Institute for Progress is kind of an all of the above energy approach, being pragmatic about these things. So if you look at each type of energy, you should think about like, what is this project or this energy source offsetting? So if, if this isn't built, what are we going to use instead, right? So I think when it comes to nat natural gas is obviously very controversial. This is part of the mansion permitting reform deal last year. They want to get the Mountain Valley pipeline, natural gas pipeline built. And so that is a fossil fuel source, right? So there is pollution, but if it's replacing coal, if it's replacing oil, right, that's uh, a net improvement. And so I think coal in particular is just such a dirty energy source and really needs to be phased out globally as quickly as possible. But there are cases where things like natural gas could have a counterfactual positive impact on the environment. And then, of course, anytime we build solar, wind, geothermal, nuclear, we're building a very clean energy source. Permitting reform has become a huge buzzword, not just because People really are enthusiastic about permitting reform or it's a sexy topic, but because it became kind of a sticking point in negotiations about other things in D.C., whether that was the Inflation Reduction Act, the big kind of budget deal that Biden was able to get last year teaming up with Joe Manchin, or whether it was the failed effort by Schumer and Manchin, uh, Chuck Schumer being the Senate Majority Leader, Senator from New York, and Joe Manchin being the Senator from West Virginia, who's often seen as kind of the swing vote, right? Because <laughs> he's a moderate Democrat. And they tried to get a permitting reform tied to the national defense bill. We could have a separate podcast about the <laughs> wisdom of putting things into defense bills that don't have anything to do with defense, but we'll save that for another <laughs> podcast. But it didn't work, right? The, the deal fell apart. Now you have a Republican-led House of Representatives. Is there bipartisan agreement on NEPA reform? Or is it the old Republicans want to reform NEPA so they can get more fossil fuels. Democrats want to keep NEPA because they believe, however incorrectly you might say, that it's protecting the environment. Or are there common sense kind of points on NEPA that these two parties can agree on? And will we see anything happen this year, 2023? Yeah, I think it's definitely, I try to be an optimist. And I think the work we do is really important because even when the odds are long against something happening, if you do change federal public policy, um, it has huge effects in the United States and around the world due to global spillovers for innovation and also the fact that other countries copy U.S. policy. So I'm caveating this by saying very unlikely something happens this year. We're working on it. We're trying to help members from both parties. We work with both Democrats and Republicans come together on this. But status quo is most often wins in the U.S. Uh, in, in D.C. <laughs> policymaking. So I'm not predicting any successes, but it's one of these things that there's an inevitably something will have to change because the current system is so broken. So if it's not this year, it could be in the next five to seven years. Like it's very likely, I think over that sort of time period, a nice coalition could emerge. And I think the the way you find common ground here is definitely framing this as a deregulation for Republicans because it is. Um, it's making it easier to build things. Republicans will definitely try to push for fossil fuels and clean energy to be treated the same on equal footing. A lot of the arguments we make is that Due to certain path dependence, historical reasons, fossil fuel enjoys advantages that clean energy sources don't currently in terms of how they're regulated. So, for example, oil and gas exploration on federal land gets a categorical exemption from NEPA and other procedural laws. And 
geothermal, which is essentially fracking using a lot of the same technology, even often smaller footprints in terms of how much land for exploration they need to, to do fracking, they don't get a categorical exemption. So that makes it more expensive to do geothermal. And so geothermal is at a disadvantage relative to legacy fossil fuels. Um, and there are many, many cases like this. Maybe one more example I'll give is that transmission lines need to go through local, state, and federal siting and permitting processes. But natural gas pipelines, there's an almost century-old law in the books that allows the federal government to have sole control over siting and permitting for natural gas pipelines across state lines. And so we're just asking that transmission lines should be treated similarly to natural gas pipelines and give them unequal footing. So I think that's a way of framing things that wouldn't necessarily give clean energy an advantage. It's just bringing them up to, up to the same level. And then, of course, like I think the Democratic Party is really kind of riven by this topic where some do recognize the need for reform if we're actually going to build things with all the public money that was passed into law. And then others, I think, are too terrified of, well, this has been our most effective tool to block oil and gas pipelines. And a pipeline is such a, like a physical manifestation of like you can see you have this video of protesters sitting in front of pipelines, like stopping this dirty project and then taking away any tools that help prevent those projects from happening. There's a lot of wariness in the environmental community. So I think like it's going to take time. People are going to process things through. But eventually, I think people will realize like if we don't build solar, wind, geothermal, nuclear, we're never going to decarbonize the economy. Is there not an inherent tension between being kind of anti-fossil fuel or wanting to phase out fossil fuels and the green energy future? And it's a bit ironic. You, you point out one, for one irony, which is that the same law that can be used to block a fossil fuel project, NEPA, can also be used to block a solar farm. Right. And unless unless you plan on convincing Republicans to to rewrite the laws in a way where you can never have permitting reform for fossil fuels, but also have permitting reform for solar, like good luck with that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Manchin, like you said, he wants his pipeline, but he's willing to make it easier to build wind and solar. But it's not just that. It's that a lot of the clean energy investment in this country is being done by fossil fuel companies. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, BP and Shell and other companies, the way they have the cash to finance their wind endeavor or their carbon sequestration experiment is because they're selling fossil fuels, right? So if you are kind of anti-fossil fuel or trying to phase out fossil fuels at this moment we're in, aren't you actually making it harder to stop climate change? And you've talked about this tension on, you know, let's say the environmental left or just like the center left where there are folks that don't necessarily want a to, to build and, and make it easier to build because they see the climate crisis as a way to get us to just produce less, right? To, to like an anti-growth agenda, right? So um, is there not this tension? If you're trying to kneecap fossil fuels or slow down fossil fuels, you're actually making it harder to get the money we need for green energy projects? Yeah. I'll put a pin in that second part because I think that's like a much longer discussion. <laughs> um, for the rest of the podcast, we, we can talk about, yeah, what are the true goals here and do they want to actually build clean energy or engage in some kind of degrowth, degrowtherism, yeah. anti-consumerism type thinking. But the first part about like how we should think about oil and gas companies in this conversation, I'm not as persuaded by the argument that like we need to make sure that they're very profitable so that they can finance experiments with clean energy projects. Obviously, clean energy startup companies can raise venture capital. They can get debt financing from banks if they want to borrow money ahead of revenues coming in for projects. So they're alternative financing mechanisms. But I think the way we should think about oil and gas is probably with the gas prices last year, with price of oil spiking so much, gas prices at the pump spiking a lot. 
belatedly, the Biden administration realized how much of a political problem this was and like imperiled Democratic chances in the midterms. And so they took action late in terms of things they did with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and futures contracts. Our friends at the Employ America think tank here in D.C. were trying to do creative things with futures contracts to guarantee demand that the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, would refill um, at a high price so that oil companies know if I drill today, I'll be able to recoup my investments because prices will be sufficiently high and they won't collapse. And I think getting us out of this boom-bust dynamic in the oil and gas industry is actually critical for decarbonization, right? Because oftentimes, whether it's an oil company doing it themselves or other clean energy developer, they'll do exploration. Like, let's get into geothermal. Let's see what's going on there. Um, And then oil prices will spike. And we're like, well, we got to pull everybody and all the resources back towards pumping. And then oil prices will collapse. And then they, well... Maybe we're now we're interested in clean energy again, but actually consumers aren't interested in switching to clean energy alternatives when fossil fuels are super cheap. And so it's, it's this boom bust dynamic that I think is actually slowing down decarbonization. So insofar as fossil fuels will be with us for the near term, for sure, there's no getting around that. We need to be pragmatic. I also think creative ideas like how to use the SPR and how to use government purchases to kind of stabilize prices are really appealing to me and interesting. Let's talk about the politics around energy policy and how the Biden administration has performed on energy. One of the right and Republicans and some in the energy sector, one of their biggest critiques of President Biden is that he's been anti-American energy. And they have examples they cite. One is that one of his first actions as president was shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. And they say, okay, you want to help the environment, transporting gas and oil through a pipeline is safer than doing it by truck trucks emit carbon and they also crash and spill, et cetera. But he did that, right? And that was a big kind of campaign promise. And in the presidential debate, it seemed like he was really putting American energy on notice. Let's take a listen. Number one, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. I mean, there you have it, right? He said it himself. Is it fair to say that President Biden has been bad for American fossil fuels? Yeah, I think they definitely had a change of tune where that, that, that kind of rhetoric was definitely consistent throughout. And then once they realized that high gas prices at the pump were probably the single most important variable in terms of falling approval ratings for the president and the Democratic Party, they tried to kind of have it both ways where, well, now there's a recognition that we need to transition and we want oil and gas companies investing today. And I think reasonably the industry said, well, if it's only a short-term situation and you're going to try to shut us down in five to 10 years by doing all sorts of regulatory things or giving unfair subsidies to competitive energy sources, like why would we invest today? We're just going to return the capital to our shareholders because it's we can't actually recoup our investments in new drilling. And so I think they eventually tried to get around this with the SPR uh, strategy and selling oil from the SPR today and guaranteeing to buy it back at a higher price in the future. So I think there's some mixed messaging, I would say, but in general, it's clear that the Democratic Party and the Biden administration has been much tougher on fossil fuels than the Republican administrations previously. And again, I think you go, I think I have you to go back to like, take it on a project by project basis. It's not all fossil fuels are good or bad. All clean energy is good or bad. It's what is the emissions effect of this project? And I think for natural gas in particular, and I no special reason to love natural gas, but it's. But I think it's. If you look at the emissions effects, especially with the rise of the global LNG market, liquefied natural gas, and the U.S. being an exporter now globally, oftentimes pipelines in the U.S. that 
go to the coast and then get turned into LNG. What that means is that it's replacing coal in a developing country and like using natural gas from LNG instead of coal isn't is a climate win. That's really, really difficult for the environmental left to accept because natural gas is a fossil fuel. And carbon emissions is one way to measure environmental impact. And I'm not going to say that that is not important, but there are other measurements of energy policy like war, right? And whether a country that you're buying from is corrupt and oppressive and belligerent, right? So I think one of the critiques that's come out of the Biden administration's policy and the fact that Putin invaded Ukraine and, you know, the U.S. maybe had curbed some domestic production and was having conversations with Iran and Venezuela that really pissed off the right because they were saying, you're talking to these countries that produce it more dirtily, if that's a word. <laughs> um, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, more dirtily than in Texas. How dare you, right? How dare you curb American production? And you said it yourself in the uh, in, in the debate, and we know you're anti-American energy, but then you're going to these dictators who are not only terrible people and horrible regimes, but also using that money potentially to finance terrorism against the United States. And then you're asking them, right? And, and we were buying some amount of gas and oil from Russia, of course, too, so yes, carbon emissions is important and it's great for the U.S. to reduce their emissions in theory. But what about this idea that we should be producing as much as we can here because otherwise then we become dependent on these terrible regimes? And you, you heard Trump when he was president. He In 2018, he got into it with the Germans and NATO on this. And uh, he basically called them out for their dependence on Russia. We'll take a quick listen. Well, I have to say, I think uh, it's very sad when Germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with Russia where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions of dollars a year to Russia. So we're protecting Germany, we're protecting France, we're protecting all of these countries. And then numerous of the countries go out and make a pipeline deal with Russia where they're paying billions of dollars into the coffers of Russia. Ultimately, Germany will have almost 70% of their country controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you tell me, is that appropriate? And as was often the case with Trump, and you know, a lot of folks said he was right, but he was mocked in the press. You know, He doesn't know what he's talking about. And in Brussels, they were laughing at him. But was he not right to kind of sound the alarm that Western developed countries in their effort to kind of clean up their own books, right? Okay, so I'm in, a, I'm in Germany. I'm going to shut down a nuclear plant. I'm going to shut down a coal plant. But then I'm just going to buy it from this terrible dictatorship. I guess it's a long way of getting to the point of, is reducing carbon emissions such a noble goal if the end result is more dependence on malign regimes, potentially financing and enabling their war? Should we maybe think about energy not just in terms of carbon emissions, but also the geopolitical significance of oil and gas. And is, is, the, is the progressive movement in the United States, the Democratic Party, just not accepting that there are serious geopolitics at play? And yeah, maybe climate change causes a hurricane, but maybe a hurricane doesn't even come close to the destruction that's been caused in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely right. I think one small point I'll make at the beginning is that this is also how bipartisan deals happen, right? So if you can frame things in terms of national security, energy independence, this is the phrase I think Senator Manchin started using a lot at the end of last year is energy security. Um, I think because it's obviously true and it's a way to get both Democrats and Republicans to support certain kinds of expanded energy uh, production in the United States. But I think honestly, when the Biden administration decided to 
go to Venezuela, go to Saudi Arabia and basically beg them to drill more and export more to the United States in terms of oil. It was like one of the most shameful moments of, of the Biden administration so far. I was just like, this is so much worse than drilling in the United States. Like and it's come to this. And so I think you, you, you phrased it as like, oh, is, is lowering carbon emissions worth all of this? Well, in these cases, we're not even lowering carbon emissions. We're just getting fossil fuels from other countries instead of producing them domestically. So it's just like a uh, you know, purely worse situation, inferior situation than, than domestic production. Um, and I think this, you see this in Europe as well, where they have rules against domestic fracking in many of their countries, and then they import uh, fracked oil and natural gas from countries like Russia. And it's just so obvious that once you have fixed infrastructure in place, you are quite dependent on them. And it and it seemed to make them more hesitant of, in some parts of Europe to push back against, against Putin as he's being more aggressive in Ukraine. And so I think energy security is a big deal. The United States is blessed with a lot of natural gas and other energy resources. And so we need to be doing things to decarbonize in the long run, but we have to also be realistic in terms of the geopolitical implications of our energy policy and begging dictatorships for energy is like just frankly embarrassing. Right. So there's that aspect of potentially empowering dictatorships through fossil fuels, but then there's also the potential that our efforts to decarbonize could potentially empower regimes that we don't like, namely China. So a lot of folks who are critical of the Biden administration's energy policy this fixation, they would say, on electrification, right? We need electric cars. Everything needs to be battery powered. The idea that, you know, because it's electric, it's not as bad as burning gas for a car, although maybe the electricity that's in the Tesla came from a coal fired power plant, but setting that aside, if we're buying solar panels and electric car batteries from China, and China has, you know, kind of a stranglehold, arguably, on cobalt and the, and the precious mm-hmm. metals that are used to make these batteries to make these solar panels and they're mining it in China and they're mining it in Africa and China has tentacles all over Africa. We could do a whole episode on that. (laughs) Are we not just creating another situation like what Europe is going through with Russia, right? Europe sent all this money to Russia and then Russia used it to finance their war, still using it to finance their war. We are now in a situation where we're talking about banning TikTok. We did an episode on that. We're talking about decoupling from China. We're, we're scrutinizing supply chains. Basically, the only bipartisan committee in Washington these days is the China committee that's getting set up, and we'll probably be doing episodes on that. But at the same time that we're very concerned about China asserting itself in the world and its, and its power, how can we justify passing bills like the Inflation Reduction Act saying, yeah, we're going to do this green energy thing, and we're sending the money to China? Like, does, doesn't, like yes, carbon emissions, maybe it helps us with carbon emissions, Maybe it helps the world with carbon emissions, but isn't that a security risk? Like, should we not be thinking twice about pushing towards electrification if it's empowering the CCP? It depends. I think and it's hard to do on a podcast uh, in, in real time, but I think we'd want to do like a dollar by dollar breakdown of the Inflation Reduction Act to see exactly where that money is flowing. Because at a very high level, the way I think about the Inflation Reduction Act is actually given it's by American standards and domestic, we need to re-onshore manufacturing and production to the United States. A lot of this will not go towards countries like China, but it won't go anywhere else. It'll only go in the United States where we're not necessarily even the most efficient producer, a lot of these inputs and and, and not, I mean, obviously we've hollowed out our manufacturing base over decades and that can't come back overnight. I just saw a report in the Financial Times this last week that American ports that are trying to expand using some of this money from like the bipartisan infrastructure bill asked DOT for an exemption from the Buy American rules for certain key pieces of equipment, electrical equipment, so clean equipment, 
that they wanted to buy from Japan and I believe Australia, but two, two foreign countries that are like allied with the United States. And the, the equipment they were trying to purchase is not manufactured anywhere in the United States. But because DOT has such a political mandate to, for these Buy American provisions, they denied the exemption. And so now we're just not going to expand our ports. And so a key goal of the infrastructure <laughs> bill is not going to be achieved. And a key climate goal of electrifying key pieces of equipment in, in our infrastructure is, is not going gonna, gonna to be slower. And so I think what I would actually really like to see is a balanced middle path that I think is quite plausible, which is Buy American is extremely politically popular. So it's understandable why politicians, both in the Republican Party and Democratic Party, go for it. But to be realistic, consumer American consumers also hate inflation. Yeah, They hate high energy prices. And so Buy American standards, at least in the energy sector, but other sectors as well, leads to higher prices. And so I think the talking point is popular, but I'm not sure it's a political winner in the medium term, let alone the long term. But like the medium term, they're going to hate you at the next election when it's really expensive to buy anything in the U.S. economy because it's all made in America. But on the flip side, this doesn't mean free, unmitigated trade that leads to, like you said, China monopolizing, particularly the processing of raw materials for so many key critical minerals where we're just wholly dependent on China. And then if there's ever conflict, they kind of have us by the short hairs. I think the the middle ground here is is friend shoring or ally shoring, where given countries that we have good relationships with, we have trade deals with, we should be moving production of clean energy raw materials and manufacturing of these products towards those countries. So critically away from China. Um, and that way it's not purely dependent on U.S. manufacturing capacity and extraction capacity, but also it's not making us in a vulnerable situation with China. Should we be producing more of those precious metals and the components needed for battery technology and, and solar panels and, and Teslas? Should we be doing more of that here? I, I, you know, I, I'm not an expert in this field, but I've seen a lot of stories suggesting that we do have a lot of these resources in the United States, whether it's lithium or other metals, but we can't get them. Is that just a NEPA problem? Like if, if IFPs, if, if Alex Stapp's vision of permitting reform comes to pass, yes, it might lead to more oil pipelines, but it might also mean more solar and wind farms. Would it also allow us to mine those metals in the United States? Yeah, because I think, again, to be clear, NEPA is an umbrella law. So all of our environmental laws, including the ones that have to do with mining regulations, sit underneath it. And so insofar as we're doing any kind of comprehensive reform, we could make it easier to do mining in the United States. I think you see things like in Nevada, a big uh, lithium mining project is indefinitely on hold because they found buckwheat. And it's like a special kind of buckwheat. And it's like, okay, is this really worth stopping the mining of lithium in the United States, which both helps us, you know, build more American-made batteries and also decarbonize the economy. Like, what are we doing here? What happened to gluten-free, right? I mean, I thought we don't care about weed anymore. Yeah, right? exactly. We're supposed to be anti-wheat now, <laughs> yeah, but exactly. or we're really protecting this buckwheat. And there are all sorts of examples of, like, uh, one very rare species of toad. There's actually, like, a subspecies of, of toad. They're very similar sisters, but, like, this is endangered because it's one subspecies that lives in this one part of... Uh, Utah, like, might inter interfere with a geothermal project. That's why we can't do geothermal. Like, just very absurd situations like this where things like the Endangered Species Act are being abused. And this is not what most people would think of as a truly endangered species. Let the record show that Alex Stapp wants to massacre the toads. Exactly. If it means, All toads. If yeah. it means energy abundance, he will uh, sit in a field of death of toads. Um, so speaking of energy sources that can kill people, uh, nuclear energy. <laughs> so yeah. my impression of nuclear energy in the United States is that we were doing it a lot because of, you know, we, we had obviously achieved this technology that could be used for, you know, arguably 
not great means like blowing people up, but also <laughs> powering homes. And basically people got scared, right? We had the three mile Island incident. There was Chernobyl in Ukraine, which was an obviously obvious disaster. I would you know, recommend you check out the HBO show. And that was arguably caused by incompetence, not by the technology itself, but uh, obviously a horrible thing. Fukushima, the disaster in Japan that was caused by the tsunami that caused reactors to go, you know, go off the rails, et cetera. And of course, we talked about earlier that just the nimbyism, you know, people don't want to live next to a nuclear reactor, even though these days you might get a deal on a house. But politicians also don't want nuclear reactors in their districts. Is there a way to turn the tide on nuclear energy in this country? It seems like we keep going towards shutting things down. You know, New York shut one down. California, maybe reverse course, was going to shut one down. We had one new reactor in 2016. That was like the first one in decades. Is there a role for nuclear energy in an energy abundant future? Or are we just so far gone in the United States? It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think there's great potential there. And I think I have hopefully a somewhat more nuanced opinion than people who are like extremely pro-nuclear, extremely anti-nuclear. And the way I think about it is that a key thing in terms of energy adoption is costs over time, right? Or is this a source of energy getting cheaper or more expensive? And so famously, things like solar, wind, and batteries in particular follow what's called Wright's Law, which means every time you double production of that particular energy source, the cost of producing it per unit of energy falls by a certain fixed percentage. So it's getting cheaper as you're getting better at practicing. It's like it's learning by doing. And so that's a reason we should be optimistic about those sources of energy in the future. Notably, nuclear has a negative learning. We've actually been, it's been getting more expensive to build the nuclear plants and costlier for each unit of energy those plants produce. Now, of course, nuclear defenders would say that's because regulations are terrible. We've made it much, much harder to build. Um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is effectively in how they regulate the industry anti-nuclear. Um, because they have essentially a pure safety mandate, the way to be the safest is to just not build anything at all. Right. And that's, that's, that's the net effect of their current regulatory standards. And so I think a more nuanced perspective is, look, this is not just a uniquely American problem. Nuclear is getting expensive in every single country around the world that tries to build nuclear. The South Koreans used to be an outlier, but in the last five to 10 years, they've actually also themselves fallen in this trap where they're getting worse at building nuclear. And so I view that as like, if it's common across countries, it's probably a human problem. It's for human psychological reasons, we're fearful of the way that nuclear is currently constructed, the way the technology works. And then people in their respective countries demand from politicians, they pass laws that make it very difficult to build nuclear. And so even if it's the laws, I would say it's a bottom up, like people aren't demanding this. And so if there's any hope for nuclear in the future, how do you break out of this? And I think it's looking towards the model of solar, wind, batteries, and other energy technologies that are manufactured. Because that's actually how you get on the learning curve is repetitive processes where you make small efficiency improvements um, over time. But it needs to be in a very controlled environment where you know what most of the variables are doing. And Gen 2 nuclear was on-site massive construction. Every time you built a new plant, you're starting from scratch. And now there are 10 new regulations you have to comply with. So of course, it's getting more expensive over time. But long story short, I think something like small modular reactors could potentially be the future because they're smaller, they could be manufactured, and then maybe exported. So this could be a, an American export industry. And because they're smaller, you might be able to run them in parallel, but at least like it's less scary to the average person of like, if something were to go wrong, even if it's very unlikely, what could the fallout be from this? Well, it's a much smaller reactor. Um, maybe you could make people feel more comfortable in that sense. You mentioned the word dynamism which is the name of this show. And I actually didn't even pay you to say that. And you <laughs> now have the honor of being the first guest to say dynamism outside the context of 
<laughs> the name yeah, of the show. Yeah, so, sure. so congratulations on thank that. You, thank you. But the reason I bring it up is because I think your work is very geared towards that, right? You're trying to look at policies that create more innovation, create more production. And, and even if we may disagree on how to get there, I think you, you've got that growth mindset. And I, I do admire that about your organization. Setting aside all the regulations and the wars and the malign dictatorships that might get people depressed, there's a lot to be excited about in this space. What is the thing that you are most excited about in terms of getting towards that energy abundant future? It's probably geothermal right now because I think it checks a lot of boxes. There are key regulatory barriers that we work on fixing. I think I already mentioned in this episode the how oil and gas receives a categorical exemption under NEPA and geothermal doesn't. We're working on trying to get the law changed for that. It could help the industry, but at a very high level, like why should you be excited about the potential of geothermal relative to other energy technologies? One, it's a key form of baseload energy. So that means it can replace other dirty forms of baseload energy like coal. And this is how it can also complement things like solar and wind that are highly intermittent energy sources. So at night, hard to produce solar energy. When the wind isn't blowing, hard to produce wind energy. Of course, we could if we got much better battery technology in terms of long-term energy storage. We could store it, but... That's not guaranteed. I don't want to put all our eggs in that basket. And that could be a long way away. And so I think for geothermal, it's a clean source of baseload energy. I also think the key technologies, you can really see a clear path towards why this will work. It's because the same human capital and fiscal capital from the oil and gas industry apply to geothermal because I'll say on this podcast, but not too often publicly, like it is fracking. You're fracking the earth to access shallow heat resources to heat water, produce steam, spin a turbine, but you have to frack into the earth to do it. And so companies in the oil and gas industry that have become so good at fracking over the last couple of decades, they could pretty somewhat easily um, adapt their processes to geothermal. So we have the labor and physical capital in the United States to be world leaders in technology. And also the key thing, the last factor I would say why I'm so bullish on this is because there are many parts of the world, including the American West, where there are shallow heat resources, it's easier to access. But in principle, this could work anywhere in the world. If you dig deep enough, you will hit heat from the Earth's core. And so this could be a global solution for clean baseload energy that takes advantage of a lot of the things we've learned from oil and gas fracking. And so it really hits this sweet spot of something that makes me excited. So there you have it. That His message is kill the toads, frack the Earth. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't understand why this is not more popular. Yeah, it's people love fracking. Frack the Earth. Alec, I just realized that we have wasted all of this time talking because we only have nine more years to live. And, Mm. you know, because I mentioned earlier that we had 12 years to live three years ago. So I'm not a math whiz, but I think we now have nine years left to live. That's right. So instead of wasting our time spinning our wheels on a bunch of stuff that's never going to happen because we're all going to die, I just want to ask you, how will you be spending your last nine years on Earth? (laughs) I'll be be spending it uh, working uh, on uh, public policy in D.C. You you don't just want to take out a loan and go nuts and go travel the world? Yeah. God, you're such a nerd. To be clear, Uh, we're talking about climate change (laughs) X risk or AI X risk. uh, (laughs) Those those get talked about uh, a lot. Yeah. Well, that will do a whole episode on whether we're more likely to be killed by climate change or robots. But uh, Alec Stapp, you can find him on Twitter at Alec Stapp. That's Alec, A-L-E. C Stap S T A P P. You can check out the work of his organization at progress.institute. That is a fantastic domain name for an organization called Institute for (laughs) Progress. We will link to his piece on climate utopia in the show notes. Is there anything else you would like to plug? I know you've talked a lot about the work you're doing legislatively. Anything else that uh, our listeners should know? 
Maybe the last thing I'll add is that um, we launched our fourth policy area infrastructure, which is energy is covered under our, our infrastructure policy vertical. We just announced this this week, including also bringing someone who we work with in a part-time capacity, now on full-time, Brian Potter. Um, I highly recommend your listeners check out his Substack newsletter called Construction Physics. And Brian is an engineer with 20 years of experience trying to build things in the United States. Um, he's been fascinated by the question of why productivity in the construction industry has actually fallen over the last 50 years, which is kind of an astounding fact that we are worse at building than we were 50 years ago, even though we've had all these, what seem to be uh, advances in technology. So what's going on there? It's kind of a puzzle that there's no easy answer. And so he was doing that as a personal project. Then we said like, you know, this, this work is, and his expertise is so valuable to DC policymakers, he should be working in policy full time. And so we're really excited to have him on the team. And I highly recommend people follow Brian Potter's work. It's amazing. We're better at making the iPhone screen take up more of the phone's surface, but we are worse at construction. Incredible. Alec, this has been an absolute pleasure. Very informative. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Evan. Find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get this podcast. If you leave a review, please make it a good one. I'm just kidding. You can make it a bad one too, but uh, it'll help others find the show either way. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. And please always remember, kill the toads, frack the earth.